Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. The thing's moving. I think that means the show started. The show is on. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, sexy beasts. Sexy beasts? All of our listeners are beautiful. All of them. Okay. Each and every... Unless there's a serial killer listening, because you're not beautiful. Then you're an actual beast. Yes. Here's our disclaimer. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Um, nom, nom, nom. This is episode 82. Whew, that's uh, 18 away from 100, Mike. <laughs> I'm shocked that you actually did math in your head today. You see how quickly I did that? Like, boom, right there. Math. Math. Done. Yeah. Answered. Completed. Excellent. Right? It, yeah, it really was. I'm looking forward to this episode, but it's kind of tough. It's a really tough one. In fact, I want to have an extra bit of a warning for folks. This week's show contains graphic descriptions of domestic violence that end in the murder of an individual. So please use your discretion when listening. And these are usually cases that I can get a bit uh, lippy, uh, a bit vulgar, because I get angered by this shit. But Scott's trying. He's, He's trying to say things more intelligently lately, and I've noticed that, and I appreciate it. Yeah, well, try. Uh, This week we dive into another of the most heinous examples of spousal abuse that I think I've ever read. This seems right up there with stories like Jane Hirschman's. She endured brutal abuse for years at the hands of her common-law husband, Billy Stafford, whom later was killed with a shotgun as he slept in his truck, and Jane went to jail for that crime. Yeah. We covered her story in episode 16 of the show. Yep, I remember that one well. Billy. Although the number of years of sustained abuse was much fewer than those between Jane Hirschman and Billy Stafford, the intensity of abuse in this case is no less horrifying. After four years of being together and two years of marriage, 33-year-old Donna Ellen Jones was tortured to death by her husband, Mark Peter Hutt, the man who'd sworn to love and cherish her. This is domestic horror, the murder of Donna Jones. Yeah, this one gets my goat. Much of the research about Donna Jones' life prior to her murder comes from an article by Chloe Fedio in the Ottawa Citizen on June 25th, 2013. It's called A Bond Only Death Could Break. Donna Ellen Jones was born in Ottawa on Christmas Day in 1975. She had an older sister named Jennifer. Her younger brother, Derek, was born 17 months after Donna. Financial stress made for some difficulties in the Jones home. Although not known to be violent, Donna's dad, James, was known for his loud, angry outbursts. 
he would sometimes, quote, belittle his wife and children. Donna's brother Derek later testified that his father James was, quote, a caring, loving man, but he had an aggressive side to him. His anger would build up and he would explode, end quote. Donna's mother, Irina, was vivacious and kind, always a peacemaker. Donna's personality was a lot like her mom's. Donna was known to, quote, intervene in situations where her mother needed protection from, quote, her domineering father. Fedio's article also mentions that Donna's older sister Jennifer struggled with anxiety, often leaving Donna to play the role of the oldest sibling. Donna even came to younger brother Derek's aid when he later ran into alcohol and drug addiction-related legal issues. Hmm, sounds like there are some definite struggles going on in the family. Sure. Yeah. And like most families, there's there were struggles in mine, mostly created by me, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, like most families, there's some strife. Not all family lives can be perfect. From all reports, Donna was a warm, kind, and generous person with a love to laugh and a great sense of humor. She had sparkling blue eyes that smiled along with her. She had many girlfriends from high school and was involved in team sports and other activities. She stuck close with these pals as she went on to study psychology at Carleton University and then later took HR courses at Algonquin College. Donna was often the one initiating things. She was, quote, the event planner. Oh, she sounds like really together. Donna found pleasure in continuing her education. She took courses with an older friend from work, including massage therapy, step dancing, and kickboxing. She was really close to this woman, who she apparently considered a, quote, second mom. They'd met while working at the Canada Revenue Agency in 2000. Donna sounds pretty damn cool. Yeah. Always frugal and responsible with money, Donna chose to live with her parents to pay off her student loans and save to buy her own place. At 29 years old, she did just that, purchasing her own home at 1087 Barwell Avenue, quote, not far from where her parents lived. At 29 years old, I couldn't save up for dinner, <laughs> right? let, let alone a home, so good on her. According to Chloe Fedio's article, it was, quote, around that time, she was introduced to Mark Hutt by a mutual friend from her soccer team. Donna had some quirks too, like all of us do. For sure. She was, quote, self-conscious about her weight and about a lazy eye. I have both of those things. I don't. And she had not dated much at all, having no significant relationships through high school. Meeting men was not easy for her. Oh. She was a pretty girl. I think she just had self-confidence probably. That I can absolutely relate to. Yeah, me too. I wasn't a pretty girl, though. Well, let's not jump to conclusions. Oh, God. When Mark Peter Hutt landed in her life showing interest right away and saying all the right things, Donna fell for him hard. Hutt confided in her about his rough childhood and a jealous streak, a previous relationship had gone sideways when Hutt claimed he discovered his ex being unfaithful. Mm, okay. Donna took this seeming broken bird under her wing. Some in her circle of friends and family thought Mark was too rough for Donna and that she could do better. I can totally relate, though, to the healer aspect, always wanting to, to take care of somebody and fix them. Yeah, and that seems to be what her personality was yeah. throughout. Yeah, I, I so relate to that. Yeah. And it, that can be very taxing on your own mental health. Donna was in love. She felt she was just what he needed that, quote, he was turning his life around, even though he, quote, had a temper. Yeah. Hmm. Much of the information we could gather in Mark Peter Hutt's past come from Andrew Seymour's Ottawa Citizen article, will include quotes from Mark Tutt himself, as told to Andrew Seymour from jail for what they're worth. Hmm. If you're willing to read between the lines, you might just see this is an attempt by a remorseless narcissist to deflect responsibility away from himself. A narcissist will do everything to improve their perception in the eyes of others. And seeing some videos of this fella, that fully describes him. Mark Peter Hutt was born on June 23, 1976. Directly from Andrew Seymour's article, quote, At first he lived with both mother, Betty Hutt, and father, Peter Hull, 
but says that as a five-year-old, he hastened his parents' breakup by telling his mother that daddy's girlfriend makes good muffins. Hutt then split time between his parents until his mother met a very bad person. When the man's abuse of Hutt's mother got too bad, his father stopped him from seeing her, end quote. Hutt goes on to claim that as a youngster, he saw his mother beaten and battered on multiple occasions. This culminated in seeing the man carted off by police after breaking his mother's arm. Oh, that's, yeah, no matter who the individual is, that's some terrible shit to have to witness. Yes. Oh, that'll damage you. For sure. Little eyes and ears should not hear and see those things. Such an influential age as well. And it doesn't go on to excuse future behavior. Nope, nope, not not at all. But it's there's a difference between uh, excusing and understanding. Yeah. Hutt said life at his father's wasn't much better. He claimed they treated him cruelly, and he would lash out, getting in trouble for that. At one point, he admits to shoving his stepsister off a dock into the icy water in winter. Shit. Right? Right wow. through the ice, apparently. Oh, no. He claims he had learning disorders and ADHD. All of this is uncorroborated. Mm. He would be picked up and taken home by police for throwing rocks and breaking windows. School was not for Mark. He discovered booze and weed and dropped out of school at the beginning of the ninth grade. Oh, wow, that's early. He worked with his father, roofing throughout his teens, and was never able to hold any other stable employment. His life was just a party. Mm. He would use his addictions to alcohol and marijuana to minimize or explain away a lot of his behavior. Even one of Mark's ex-girlfriends said he could be charming and affable one minute and, quote, a raging dog the next. She'd been through a two-year roller coaster with Mark Hutt just prior to his meeting Donna Jones. Mm. The woman said that Mark had, quote, shoved her down the stairs and, quote, pressed the dull back of a folding knife onto her neck as he held her down on the bed. Oh, shit, so that's not a good history. Not a good history. Oh, God. Okay. They went through the usual cycle of an abusive relationship, breaking up and reconciling after promises to, quote, do better. But things always devolved right back into the same nightmare, like an evil version of the movie Groundhog Day. I have such sympathy for uh, partners who have to go through this. Mark Hutt has all the tendency of a narcissistic person unwilling to change, blaming his anger and shitty actions on a rough past and his addictions. The narcissist's inability to take responsibility for their own actions is based on a worldview that puts them at the top of the heap. They are incapable of owning the choices they've made regarding their own behavior. Anything perceived as negative about them belongs to some external cause. Any admission of personal flaws is impossible, otherwise the whole delusion comes crashing down. In cases of domestic abuse, the victim becomes the cause of the behavior, and therefore suffers the consequences. I've been down the anger road further than I would like, but it does not ever have to go as far as he took it. It can stop, but you have to reach out for help. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be possible to change yourself alone. You, you And you need to want that. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. Like you, you most likely were in that situation where you said, you know what? Like, I don't like where things are going. Yeah. I need to do something. That's growth. That can result in permanent. True. But the problem with the narcissist is they do not want to change. They're incapable. Mm-hmm. But for those who do have a conscience about their behavior and really do want to change... There is help for you. We'll post some links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But Mark Hutt wasn't willing to do that. No. When Donna Jones met him, she had no idea what she was in for, other than the emotional outburst she had seen from her father and her mother sticking by him through it all, Donna had no real experience in relationships. Mm. Mark swept Donna off her feet, but friends saw right through him. He was using Donna. He saw a vulnerable target and homed in on her. Donna had a stable job, money, and owned a home. All things he was unable to obtain himself. He was a guy who couldn't get any other work than what his dad offered him, and that was not steady. (sighs) Donna began spending all her time with Mark, pulling away from everyone else. 
After only a few months, people noticed changes in Donna's personality. She seemed tired a lot and was not always as bubbly as she had been. People close to Donna began to notice bruises on her arms and legs. They asked if she was okay. Some even came right out and asked if Mark was being violent. Donna denied any abuse, saying that she'd been bumping into things and even, quote, tripped over one of Hutt's dogs. Oh, oh, this makes me sad. It's all the classic. Yeah. Yeah. Signs someone's being abused. Donna began wearing clothing that covered her arms and legs. She even started to wear turtlenecks rolled all the way up to her jawline. She was trying, as many battered women do, to cover up the physical abuse heaped on her by her partner, Mark Hutt. And again, having seen some of the videos, I'm confident that uh, he can dismiss it all away as not his fault. Also in line with many in abusive situations, Donna continued to deny that there were any problems between she and Mark that she couldn't handle alone, even in light of the actual evidence. Yeah, well, that's, that's, she's a victim. Yeah, and we'll get into that. On more than one occasion, during phone calls with friends, Mark Hutt could be heard screaming profanities at Donna in the background. Donna's voice sounded small and defeated, but she claimed she was okay. Mm. During one call, Mark was overheard saying, quote, You better be fucking home tonight, Donna Jones. If you're not here, I'll kill you, your family, and myself. And Donna just said, Mark, I will be home. Oh, good God. Wow. What a terrible thing to say to somebody. Like, I know that's an understatement, but like, holy shit. Yeah. Kill you, your family, and myself. Like, holy guilt trip. The worst kind. Exactly. According to Andrew Seymour's article, a friend and colleague of Donna's named Melanie Houle later said, quote, I told her that relationships like this can escalate, usually don't have happy endings, that usually people die. Houle went on to say, she didn't acknowledge the abuse, so she couldn't acknowledge the end result. Mm, that's a good point. At this point, we feel it's important here to discuss briefly what some of the experts say as to why people stay in abusive relationships. Yes, let's do that. If we get this wrong, please don't send us emails about it. As we say at the top of the show, we're not experts on the topics we discuss. We're just trying to tell a story in the best way we can and gain some understanding of yes. it ourselves. yes. Victim blaming has been the cry of many excusing an abuser's behavior. Quote, she should have known better. Why didn't she just listen to the warnings? Or the worst of all, it serves her right for sticking around. Oh, God. I mean, how many times have you heard those things over I, the years? I, you know, I know people who have been in very, very similar situations, and I have nothing but empathy for them. Uh, it's so easy on the outside. It's so easy on the outside to tell somebody what they should and shouldn't do, but the controlling mechanisms and behavior of abusers, mm -hmm. you know, that completely alters how one copes with these difficult situations. And we're going to talk about exactly those yeah, things. good. People don't stay for psychological reasons only. There are actual neurochemical factors at play in the victim's brain. That's right. Brain chemistry is affected by abuse. Fascinating, Again, from Psychology Today, quote, A few important ingredients that contribute to someone's, quote, addiction to their abuser are oxytocin, which is used in bonding in the brain. Okay. Endogenous opioids, pleasure, pain, withdrawal, dependence. Okay. Corticotropin releasing factor deals with withdrawal and stress. And dopamine, craving, seeking, wanting. With such strong neurochemistry in dysregulated states, it will be extremely difficult to manage emotions or make logical decisions, end quote. Oh, that's really fascinating. The cycle of violence creates a trauma bond between the abuser mm. and victim as well. From an article in the independent.co.uk, quote, Signs that there are a trauma bond between you and your partner are, quote, according to Psych Central, constant pattern of non-performance your partner promises you things but keeps behaving to the contrary others are disturbed by something that is said or done to you in your relationship but you brush it off you feel stuck in the relationship because you see no way out you keep having the same fights with your partner that go round in circles with no real winner 
you're punished or given the silent treatment by your partner when you do or say something, quote, wrong. You feel unable to detach from your relationship, even though you don't truly trust or even like the person you're with. And when you try to leave, you are plagued by such longing to get back with your partner, you feel it might destroy you, hmm. end quote. Wow. Abusers use coercive and controlling behavior to gain control over their victims. These behaviors are classified as domestic abuse in many countries. Mm -hmm. From womensaid.org.uk, quote, Coercive control creates invisible chains and a sense of fear that pervades all elements of a victim's life. It works to limit their human rights by depriving them of their liberty and reducing their ability for action. Some common examples of coercive behavior are isolating you from family and friends, depriving you of basic needs such as food, monitoring your time, monitoring you via online communication tools or spyware, taking control over aspects of your everyday life such as where you go, who you can see, what you can wear, and when you can sleep, depriving you access to support services such as medical services, repeatedly putting you down such as saying you're worthless, humiliating, degrading, or dehumanizing you, controlling your finances, and or making threats or intimidating you, end quote. That is a list of really shitty things to do to somebody. Yeah, it, it pisses me off and it frustrates me. And because I know people currently going through or people who have gone through this recently, I loathe people who need to control their partners and do so in a manner which is very destructive to their partner's mental health. Like, yeah. it just it's, let people live. But there's that insecurity that bubbles up that makes them need to control. Oh, it's just like it's so pissed. Another favorite tactic employed by narcissists in convincing victims to stay in an abusive relationship is creating cognitive dissonance in the mind of the victim. Mm. From VeryWellMind.com, quote, the term cognitive dissonance is used to describe feelings of discomfort that result when your beliefs run counter to your behaviors and or new information that is presented to you, hmm. end quote. One of these common tactics is called gaslighting. Mm -hmm. you've, you've, yeah, heard yeah. The, you've heard the phrase, I'm not crazy, you are. Yeah. Boiled down to a simplest form, in the right context, this sentence could be considered gaslighting. Mm -hmm. The term comes from the 1944 film Gaslight, based on a 1938 play. In this film, a woman moves back into the home which her aunt was murdered in with her new husband. The husband, with the motive of keeping up a secret, does things around the house that makes the wife, played brilliantly by Ingrid Bergman, mm. begin to believe that she is insane. The abuser relentlessly tells the victim that what they believe is not true thus eroding the victim's sense of reality. Hmm. The victim begins to doubt their own mind and even their own sanity. Okay. I didn't know the origins of that term. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's a great movie, actually. You should check it out. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I think uh, I need to, yeah. The classic example, obviously, of gaslighting. And good old Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. Bergman, she's great. So this is the trap that Donna Jones found herself early on in her relationship with Mark Hutt. Despite all warnings, Donna Jones became engaged to Mark Hutt in 2006. <sighs> Just want to hug her. From Chloe Fedio's article in the Ottawa Citizen, quote, Concern among her friends only grew, and instead of a bachelorette party, they staged a formal intervention three weeks before her wedding. Shaking and crying, Jones listened to their concerns but refused to go to a safe house. Mm. Her bridesmaids dropped out, but in September 2007, the wedding went ahead, end quote. Oh. And we'll take a break here and come back with a tragic conclusion of this story. And we're back. Yes, we are. Court documents paint the picture of what ultimately transpired between Donna Jones and Mark Hutt. Just over two years after Donna Jones and Mark Hutt were married on the morning of December 6, 2009, at 9.15 in the morning, Mark Hutt called 911, screaming into the phone that his wife was not breathing. <sighs> Seven minutes later, paramedics arrived at their modest two-story home in the Bayshore area at 1087 Barwell Avenue in Ottawa. 
Donna Jones was found in the basement on a, quote, makeshift mattress. She was badly burned, had black eyes, and other noticeable injuries. Even though Mark was pleading for them to do so, paramedics did not attempt to resuscitate Donna. Why? Donna was already dead for so long that rigor mortis had set in, and they could not open her mouth to intubate her. Her eyes could not be opened to view the reactivity of her pupils. Do you know how long it takes for rigor mortis to set in? Quite some time. Okay. When police arrived, Mark gave the first version of what he said happened to Donna. He alternated between hysterical and calm, and he didn't cry when he was told his wife was dead. Oh, man, okay. Mark claimed that Donna had gone to a training seminar in Cornwall, Ontario. He said she'd had too much to drink in an outdoor party afterward and had stumbled and fallen into the bonfire. Mark claimed when he'd seen the state of her burns, he begged her to go to the hospital. He said Donna refused to go to the hospital and said that he could take care of her instead. So he's trying to portray himself as as almost a hero. Right. A good person. I told her to go. Mark claimed they'd both been sleeping in the basement so he could better tend to her injuries. He also claimed that due to her burns, Donna had fallen multiple times, hitting her head. He said she'd fallen once, undressing to take a shower, and again the day before in the bathroom. Mark claimed that he couldn't revive her at that time and had to perform CPR to bring her around again. But this morning, he'd found her not breathing. (sighs) Mark was adamant that he'd wanted Donna to go to the hospital, fearing for her life, but she continued to refuse medical attention, he claimed. Yeah, I'm calling BS, but... Mark was asked to come to the police station and speak with Major Crimes Detective Sergeant Mike Hudson at around 1 p.m. that afternoon. The interview went on for almost four hours, and Mark Hutt's story began to change. Here's what he said in his own words from a video made public by investigators. About two weeks ago, my wife has never spoken to me the way she spoke to me two weeks ago. She basically told me that she was going to go with somebody else, that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a father, that, because I do, I, I do, you know what I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect, I'm not a perfect person, I get stressed out just like everybody else, and it all started one day, I was making spaghetti in the kitchen, and I wanted to make enough two weeks because my wife loves spaghetti. She loved my spaghetti. She loved it to death. So I was making a pot. I was boiling water for the noodles. And she came up behind me and she just said, she said something about just like, this isn't, this isn't working. This isn't happening. I'm going to, I'm going to cheat on you basically. Like I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? If things don't work out, I'm going, you know, and she kept just saying it and, and putting it in my head and putting it in my head and putting it in my head. The bills in her house have been stacked up higher than you can imagine. I've been going through things with my father, everything like that. And when she said that to me, the water was boiling. And she was behind me, and I thought she had left the room. Instead of leaving the room, she was behind me. She was crouched down, and she was getting Tupperware out of the the thing to, to bring for work. And I don't know why, I don't know what I did, but the next thing I knew, I just, I hit that thing, man, I, I, I wanted to just... You know what I mean? I was so frustrated. I just wanted to, to, to you know, get my frustrations out. Okay. And when I hit that pot, she was behind me. And it just drenched her. And after that, I looked at her and I said, Sweetheart, we need to go to a hospital. And she said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to a hospital. She was afraid for me to get in trouble. And I said, I, I don't care. Just go to a hospital, please. We can deal with this together. It's an accident. We can get through it. She didn't want to go. I begged. I pleaded with her. She made up a story to her parents saying she was going to Cornwall for work. 
she told, and she actually did have a cold. She called her work and said she had a cold, that she was staying home, and she wanted to heal at home. And I told her, I said, that's not, that's, we can't do this. We have to get to a hospital. That went on for about a week of me changing bandages, staying up all night, making sure she's okay. So he said he was staying up all night, making sure she was okay. Yeah, and once again, portraying himself as more of a savior, even in admitting that he did what he did. He still, I wanted to take her, I kept telling her, we got to go to the hospital, but yeah. she was, a, I suspect. I suspect that's not the case. It was a horrible accident, according to him, and good guy that he was. He stayed with Donna, quote, tending to her wounds, and she didn't want to get him in trouble, right? You'll get in trouble if I go to the hospital. Yeah, I'm going to say no. Bullshit, Mark. Yeah, exactly. 100% bullshit. Exactly. Mark also explained away the other injuries on Donna's body, including, quote, the possibility of one or two pellets that may be found in her knee which were the result of an accidental shooting mishap at his cottage. Holy... Oh. End quote. So, he accidentally shot her in the knee twice? Did a lot of accidental mishaps happen with right. him, apparently. You know, if you use a pellet gun, which this guy had, the kind of pellet gun that they discovered in this guy's house, mm -hmm. was the kind where you have to crack the breech. So, individual load. Individual load and reload it. So... She was accidentally shot twice in the knee at the cabin. Mm-hmm. No. So yeah. bang, cock, put the pellet in, aim again, yeah. shoot. Yep, I had a, one of those rifles exactly, and that's uh, uh, there has to be some. I could see a single one being yeah. an accident, like oh, it went off and shit. Oops. A, a second time, I can't imagine what the hell's going on where you have uh, um, that happen. Well, yeah. Like, because well, well, I was trying to shoot near her. Right. Like, whatever the result is, it's like, uh, no. Sounds pretty much like you were shooting at. Yes. Not at, near. Absolutely. Oh. Anyway, Mark's version of what happened spilled out without much prompting from the officer questioning him. He went on and on with his load of bullshit. Mm -hmm. A careful autopsy and investigation by police into the relationship between Mark Hutt and Donna Jones and physical evidence gathered by forensic teams told a different story. Yeah, I bet. A warning, the following descriptions of the state of Donna Jones and the home she shared with Mark Hutt may be extremely disturbing to some. Yes. Before moving Donna, investigators entering the basement were stricken by the smell of decomposition present in the couple's home. For that to occur, Donna would have had to have been deceased longer than Mark was leading them to believe. They also notice... A window nearby is open, and the cold winter air is blowing in, as if maybe to hide the smell. Donna was wearing blue pajama pants and a black t-shirt. She clearly had burns all over her upper body. She also had bruises all over her, some older, some fresher. Her t-shirt was stuck to her burned skin. Oh my god. On the main floor of the house, there was blood spatter in the foyer all over the stair posts, the walls, and the floor. There was also a bloody hair scrunchie laying on the floor, shoes near the door spattered heavily with blood. <sighs> there were other indicators of violence in the home, like broken doors and dents in the walls that appeared to have been punched there. Behind a locked bathroom door, police discovered a few knives, two with what appeared to be blood on them and two pellet guns complete with pellets. And this is mm -hmm. one of his pellet guns. Oh my God, I'm getting really frustrated. There were also multiple handwritten notes between Mark Hutt and Donna Jones. One site reported over a hundred of them. Oh shit. The notes alternated between Hutt calling Donna a terrible wife to later begging forgiveness for his cruelty and calling her, quote, an angel. Uh, can you imagine psychologically the torture? Yeah. I mean, Oh. There were suitcases and boxes with Mark's things in the living room. It looked as though he'd been planning to leave quickly. Mm. Mark explained this all away, saying he was threatening to leave Donna if she didn't agree to go to the hospital. Oh, bullshit. I was thinking the bags were because he was planning on fleeing, 
but then he was deliberate and then he's like oh, I think I have a story I could pass that w- that I won't have to flee yeah but so they were there because he was contemplating splitting but it's probably somewhere in the middle because I, I, I think absolutely all that blood near the door could be that she was trying to leave to go to the hospital and, and he's fighting her to stay because there's no way that like I've certainly seen uh, what those kind of burns will do to a person mm-hmm. I've watched enough uh, true crime and there's no way you're going to be like, no, it's okay. I'll stay home yeah. and I'll heal. That is uh, trauma. Yeah. And, and you will be insisting. The pain would be too much. You would be insisting I need to go to the hospital. We'll get into that. <sighs> Mark's cell phone records disputed that he'd been at Donna's side ever since she'd been scalded on November 24th. His phone had made calls to his family and friends from the nearby communities of Gatineau, Vanier, and Merivale. Hmm. He'd even called an ex-girlfriend with his wife dying there in the basement of their home. Oh my god. However, his cell phone records didn't indicate that he'd ever called home to check up on Donna, even when he was away for hours at a time. Oh, I don't like this guy. That sounds like he had a lot of concern for her well-being. Oh my god. Not one single call. I wonder if he like restrained her too. So well, that so that knows? she couldn't because if he's not there, who knows? Or maybe she was just so incapacitated from the but oh my god, this fucking idiot. Investigators uncovered issues with finances in the home as well. Mark Hutt had filed for bankruptcy just after he and Donna Jones were engaged in 2006. Responsible Donna, her husband to be out of his financial mess, even paying his bankruptcy bills. Mark carried on draining away at Donna's cash, buying expensive toys like his new pool table, ATV, a snowmobile, snowboard, an expensive truck, and more. And, and just weeks prior to her death, Donna, too, filed for bankruptcy. They were about to lose everything. Here was the motive. The psychopath had used up his target. Oh, my God. He's just in every capacity, in every sense, taking advantage of her. Donna Jones' friends and family had a lot to say about Mark Hutt. Yeah, I bet. Many didn't like him at all, and out came the stories of his behavior over the past four years. Mark was clearly a jealous and controlling man who didn't want Donna to have a life of her own outside of his influence. Oh. Donna had lost a lot of weight, going from 162 pounds down to a frail 101 pounds in the time she'd been with Mark. Oh my god. She often seemed out of it, as though she were on some sort of medication. Donna's brother Derek said that since taking up with Mark Hutt, his sister had become depressed, just a sad shell of her former bubbly self. Um, Which is understandable. Her friends noticed bruises on Donna's wrists before she started covering them up, she would just smile and say that they were due to, quote, rough sex. Hmm. According to Chloe Fedio's article in the Ottawa Citizen, quote, her supervisor at work filed a third-party complaint to police on November 25th after Jones called in sick with the sniffles. Sullivan told police she was concerned about Jones' growing number of increasingly serious injuries. When Sullivan again spoke with her on the phone on December 3rd, Jones sounded garbled, quote, like she had had dental work, end quote. Jones said nothing about her injuries, end quote. <sighs> this report went uninvestigated by the Ottawa police. Again, this report went uninvestigated by the Ottawa police. The timing of this oversight was obviously poor, for the police department, as doctors later said, that intervention early after Donna's scalding would have 100% saved her life, albeit after massive doses of morphine, a respirator, fluids, and surgeries involving skin grafts. But she would have survived. Oh, it's absolutely survivable. There would be some permanent damage for sure, but this is something she could absolutely have, have lived through. From a Canada.com article written by Christy Blatchford, quote, Over the 11 days it took her to die, she kept up to the bitter end the charade that she had constructed. In seven phone calls made to her mother, Irina, after she had been scalded and would have been in what one doctor called exquisite pain, long after her kidneys would have shut down and probably her bowels, Jones pretended she was at work and absolutely swamped. 
detailed non-existent dinners and social outings, complained of nothing more than a cold and bragged about Hutt's tender, loving care of her. Mark's been making good meals, she told her mother at one point. Mark's going to drive me to a work conference, she said at another. I've got Mark here, she said in the December 2nd chat, and he's going to take care of me. And four days later, she was dead. The suffering she's going through. Well, not only that, this is the control that the guy had. Mm -hmm. He, He has such control over her that she's talking to her mother, making things up to protect him or maybe protect herself like she thought I'm I'm going to die or she didn't want to tell her mother she was dying I don't know or threatened more by him yeah. if you if you say anything yep if you say anything I'm going to kill you well that that and was then, probably a given yeah and so yeah so I mean what this uh, such a victim I feel so so bad for her it was ultimately the multiple injuries to Donna Jones' body that gave investigators what they needed to prosecute Mark Peter Hutt for his wife's murder. Mm, good. There were massive infected burns on Donna's stomach, arms, and sides. She was badly bruised and there were holes in her legs. The pattern of burns on Donna's body were telling. It showed that when she'd been scalded, she was in a crouching position with her arms crossed across her body, with her head tucked in like she'd been balled up trying to hide from what she knew was coming. About 40% of Donna's body had been burned. Her hands, fingers, and left forearm had been rudimentarily bandaged, but there had been no treatment to the major burns on her back. A total of 29 pellets from an air rifle were found embedded a centimeter deep in Donna Jones' flesh. Yes, I said 29. What the fuck? 29 pellets. Now, uh, is that like that had accumulated over time or are they saying... Yes. Oh my God. Forensic pathologist Christopher Milroy said that the pellets had been fired from a short distance to penetrate that deeply into the skin. Some had been fired after Donna was scalded, and others had been there for quite some time. So long, in fact, that Donna was showing mild lead poisoning from the pellets. Oh, my God. So I'm just like, so you've thrown hot water, scalding water on her. She's lying there in pain, and you're shooting her with pellets. Yes. Oh, my God. I have a lot of anger. From Wikipedia, Milroy noted, quote, She also had nine fractured ribs, a broken nose, two black eyes, and many cuts and bruises and scrapes on her head, knees, and legs. Milroy said these injuries were caused after Jones was burned on November 24th, 2009. Jones' body had other injuries, including seven calloused ribs, which indicates they'd Mm -hmm. been fractured before, Mm -hmm. likely caused by kicks, as well as two recent rib fractures, a broken left finger, a fractured right wrist, an earlier forearm break known as a, quote, nightstick fracture caused by a blow to the arm raised in a defensive position, end quote. So she puts her arm up and he brought a heavy whatever it was down on top of her arm and broke it. So what, what she went through, I, it's not even so much abuse as it's torture. Totally. I mean, like, she was tortured. Abuse and, and, is just a lighter word yes, for torture anyway. It, it, for a long time. Yeah. And, but, like, it, he, again, he's painted himself in that video of, oh, he's trying, I wanted her to go to the hospital. I'm a good guy. I was but trying to take care. But you notice he was only emotional when it suited him. Yeah. Well, for sure, like a lot of psychopaths. But he, he but no, you were torturing her. Yeah. You were torturing her. She's sitting there in incredible pain. And yeah. you're clearly kicking her, punching her, shooting her with pellets. Yeah. What a disgusting fucking man. Mark even claimed that he and Donna had discussed Christmas gifts 12 hours prior to his 911 call. This, too, was disputed by Christopher Milroy, the forensic scientist mm-hmm. involved in the case. He said that the conversation would have been impossible along that timeline as Donna Jones had already succumbed to her injuries at that point. Mm -hmm. Donna's untreated burn wounds became septic, and it was septic shock that eventually killed her as she lied there writhing in pain in the basement of her own home. Yeah, to to pass from uh, infections, uh, sepsis, like... It takes some that, time. That is painful. It is not quick. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my God. Yep. 
how can somebody say they love somebody and then and, and you then cannot. let them go through this? You uh, cannot. You can't. You cannot. No. You can say it, but you cannot actually. But it's not. It, yeah. It's not true. Yeah. Donna Jones' obituary at first was published on December 12, 2009 in the Ottawa Citizen, using Hutt as her last name. I've used Jones this entire time because later on a memoriam was posted three years after her death calling her Donna Jones. Her family obviously wanted to distance themselves and the memory of their daughter from the monster who'd killed her. Yeah. And so that's why I've referred to her as Donna Jones this entire time and not Donna Hutt well, because I, it's more respectful. I I, think. Yeah, I respect that, Mike. Good on you. Mark Hutt was eventually charged with first-degree murder he, of course, pled not guilty. Of course. As they always do. Mm -hmm. He was tried for the brutal crime. The evidence against him was mountainous. And other than cross-examination of witnesses, his defense attorney didn't call any witnesses to defend him mm -hmm. or present a defense of any kind. <sighs> Mark Hutt was convicted, and even his own lawyer later called him a monster. Well, that, well that's telling. At sentencing, in June 2013... Victim impact statements were read. Donna's mum reminding everyone that Donna's birthday was Christmas Day, and for the family, that day would be forever changed. Oh, my God. Peter Hutt apologized and asked for forgiveness from Donna Jones' friends and family. He said, quote, I'm disgusted and appalled at my actions. Since incarceration, I am not the monster I once was, end quote. How, how, again, like we hear in a lot of... Uh criminals what's how, different how convenient what's different now how convenient now that i'm in prison and i'm about to be sentenced trust me i'm a different guy oh bullshit having been found guilty of first degree murder mark hutt received the only sentence recommended under canadian law life without the chance of parole for 25 years you can bet that when that time comes, Donna Jones' friends and family will be right there to remind the parole board how brutally and cruelly Hutt's actions were that led to the death of their beloved daughter, Donna Jones. Yeah, oh, I, I bet they will, and I bet they and many others will do everything in their power to make sure he's never out. I, I mean, I cried a couple of times during the writing of this. I, I can understand why. I, uh... there, are, there are a few reasons I felt compelled to tell Donna Jones' story, and here's one. As a teenager, I was staying with a friend, and I walked in on a domestic violence situation. And this was at uh, the hands of my friend's father against his mother. Mm. And she was a tiny woman, and I recall her cowering in the corner with her massive husband hulking over her and screaming with his hands raised. Oh, my God. I was shocked into silence, like I'd never seen anything like that before. And I just froze outside the room near the doorway. And so my friend's older brother crept up the stairs and whispered to me to come with him, not to get involved. Hmm. So we went downstairs and hid in his bedroom and waited for the storm to subside. And apparently it was not an abnormal event there in their home. It usually isn't. Yeah. I'd never seen, like I said, I've never seen anything like that. I didn't even know when my parents were arguing. Yeah. yeah. So that really struck me. And it's still with me today. Yeah. Like that is one of those things that I still see in my mind's eye very easily. As it as it would be like that. That is a horrifying thing to have to to witness, or especially if your family. But uh, for anybody to witness. Also, as I've mentioned before, in the depths of my alcohol drug addiction, I've had problems with anger as well. I was cruel and sometimes violent toward my family, friends, and my partners. I felt a lack of control in my life believed myself somehow entitled in a twisted way, mm -hmm. and couldn't handle rejection. Rejection that was perceived. Perceived, yeah. 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 I reached out for help at the urging of some people who cared for me, and due to hitting a personal bottom, mm -hmm. you know, spiritual bottom, mm -hmm. I guess. Although my life is still a work in progress, I'm a long way from that person that I was. Yeah, well, so the difference between you and, and many, there's growth and there's change. Change is something you do for other people, and it's typically not permanent. It doesn't last. What you did was grow. Mm. What you did was say, I can't live my life this way anymore. I'm not happy with how I'm living my life, and I need to fix that. So that was internal. You, I think that's a difference between uh, a person with a conscience and a sociopath. Yeah, like that is yeah, exactly the difference. Yeah, absolutely. You you wanted to change 
for you to be a better human being, not saying, well, people are going to be mad at, she's going to be mad at me if I don't, or my parents are so, I'm, you know, I'll fine, I'll, I'll do it for them. This is not going to last. Because once you think things subside and things are back to normal, you'll go back to your old way. So you grew. You didn't change. And that's a key point to uh, how behaviors can change. Yeah, well, it's still not easy for me to talk about, obviously. Well, understandably. Carol and I met after all that. And we, although we've had some angry moments with each other, we really love each other. This I can attest to. So if you need help in Canada... If you're in a domestic abuse situation, there's a great website called endingviolencecanada.org. So check that out. We'll have that link for you in the show notes. And if you're anywhere else, just Google domestic abuse help and the area that you're in. Domestic abuse is a global issue Mm -hmm. present in all walks of life. And there will be resources to help you nearby. And if you're somebody who's an abuser, get help. Yeah, I like. I mean, I can't. I can't say any more about it. Yeah, I, you know, saying that after an episode like this, I just want to say, if you're an abuser, jump off a cliff. But I know that's not. Uh, no. it, that's just the emotion from the episode. If you are, you need to do something. Yeah, you, you need to grow. Yeah, and so do it for your. If sake. you find yourself angry with your spouse or significant other, and you're saying or doing things that you don't really want to be doing, get help. Get it. Get it, because it's not going to end well. No. Whether it be just like a life of anger and unhappiness for everybody around you, including you, or something more deadly and violent, just get fucking help. Uh, That's it for this week's story. Holy crap. I need a hand out of the darkness this week, Scott. (laughs) Yeah. So here's one of my favorite parts of our show, the shout-outs to our new Patreon patrons. I'm just going to shake my head. Yep, do it. Shake it off, Mike. Shake it off. Ooh, ooh boy. This week's good eggs are Stephanie Smith from Brockville, Ontario. Thank you, Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. Chelsea White from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I'm homesick again. I bet. Melissa Dumas from Vancouver, British Columbia. Woo, woo, Melissa. Logan Brown from... Oh, is that the Logan Brown from Kentucky? Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky. Does he make fried chicken for a living? Uh, Well. But at Popeye's. He should. You know, I never had Popeye's until recently, and it's damn good. It is really good. Because there's one right, I told you there's one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's damn good. But yeah, Logan Brown is from Kentucky. And what I think Logan Brown does is um, horse breeding. Because, you know, the Kentucky Derby. Kentucky Derby. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Logan Brown is a horse breeder. But it's all uh, three-legged horses. It is. How did you? So you do know Logan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know Logan's story. Yeah. yeah. It's not easy to like uh, to, to but, breed three-legged horses. Yeah, the the betting is a little weird and stuff like that with uh, well, there's three-legged a whole, horse races. Well, there's a whole other three-legged Kentucky Derby that people, yeah, it doesn't get a lot of hype. Uh, you kind of understand. <laughs> Probably for Un- weird reasons. Yeah. Very obvious. Oh, yeah, understandably. Like tipping yeah. horses that tip over. Yeah, it's it's a very slow race. It's not it's not all that exciting. It's more about um it's more like hopping. Well yeah, it's more it's more about just kind of slow and steady. I feel like an asshole making fun of three legged horses. They're beautiful. They're wonderful creatures. Okay. You just they're not the best choice for racing. Yeah, fair enough. That that's that's that that's a human thing. So thank you, Logan Brown, and keep up your three legged horse race uh raising. Yeah, somebody, your husbandry. Somebody needs to. Nelson Baptista, local yumber yarder who came to one of our meetups here oh, in Vancouver. Yes. Thank you so much, Nelson. Oh yes, very you much. Rock. Thank you, Nelson. Callie Fortin from Lake Country, BC, also a very uh busy yumber yarder. Yeah. Yep. She's always always there in the yumber yard and she's invited us up to be guided around the kangaroo farm that's nearby her oh, place. I would love so. that. Uh, Jessica Main from Salem, Oregon. Salem, Jessica. Thank you. Cal Bosk from Calgary, Alberta, where the stampede is going on right now. Oh, is it happening now? Yeah, so you can eat some pancakes and watch the truck wagon races. Are you st- are you stampeding, Cal? Uh, hopefully, Cal is stampeding, but cool. you never know. Right on. Sarah LaForce from Johnsbury, Vermont. Oh, wow. Never heard of her, but thanks, Sarah. Peter Fontaine. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Fontaine. He's from uh, Peter Fontaine is from uh, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah, did you know that? 
So is he? Does he live in Brussels? Yes. Okay. If is that where Belgium is? Are there sprouts in Brussels? Brussels sprouts. Ayo. Well, what does what does Peter do? Well, what do you think Peter does in in Belgium? In Belgium, yeah. He could be a chocolatier. He could be. He could be. But he's he's the classic waffle maker. Belgium waffle. Yeah. That that it that's it. It's oh. you. I know he 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 even hangs his head often because it's like yeah I know because he gets so many groans when he describes what he does. Be like, oh, of course he's. But it's a good trade. I, it's a good trade. Yeah. Well, you get to put a lot of love and passion. Yeah. Into your waffle, into making. Your waffle making, and so and I've had Peter's waffles. Some of the best waffles I've ever had in my You've life. You've been to Belgium. No, no, he he would send them here. Oh, he mails them. Yeah, yeah, fresh. <laughs> how fresh they'd be coming from Belgium. I don't know how he does it, but they're very fresh. Well, fair enough. So, you thank know. you, Peter Fontaine. Yeah, good God. It's facts, all facts. Lauren Burnham from Talk, Arkansas. Talk, Arkansas. I always want to read that as Arkansas because I'm a dumb Canadian. <laughs> Lauren from Arkansas. Arkansas. You layoth. Yep. From Hamburg, New York. And this is a username. I don't know if this person wanted us to use his actual name, so we're going with Uleath. Uleath. Hamburg. Kyla Rayfuse from Ottawa, Ontario. And Rayfuse is a very Nova Scotia, Lunenburg County in particular name. Oh, is it really? Yes. So who knows? Maybe she has family in Nova Scotia. Um, it's quite probable. We actually, the cottage that my mom and dad bought was uh, owned by someone with the last name Rayfuse. Well, there you go. Yeah. Hmm. Amanda Schwer from Mobile, Alabama. Sweet. So I, uh, yeah, Mobile, Amanda. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. You're yep. amazeballs. We appreciate everything you're doing. We do. <laughs> Christy Robinson from Spruce Grove, Alberta. Oh, Spruce Grove. Oh, sweet. Right on, Christy. A Phoenix Pinky from Victoria, B.C. We thanked Phoenix in our uh, live show just before this show. Yeah, and uh, th- I hope to hell that's like the legal name. Phoenix Pinky? That's like just one of my favorite names. I would love to have like a weird name like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, my name, Mike Brown, is probably the most boring name that you could have well, next to John Smith. You both have color in your last names. Yeah, fair enough. So there's that. Yeah, Brandon French from Norwich, New York. Wow, French. Thank you, Norwich. Brandon. Thank you so much. Muchos gracias. Or as they say in New York, hey, thanks. <laughs> we got some donut money from PayPal, too. <gasps> uh, Monet Terrio, she must really like hearing her name because she sent us some more. Wow. wow. Thank you so much, Monet. Wow. And also, Jerry Katz, along with a note, said, I'm already a patron, but I wanted to send a little donut money as a belated candidate, a token of my appreciation. Jerry from Minneapolis. Thank you so much, Jerry. How do we get so many amazing pe- listeners? This we is have such ridiculous. cool people. Wow. Ashley Craven sent us a donation with a note, buy us more poutine. <laughs> okay. And Legsy Charlton sent us an Interact e-transfer of what she wanted us to call Kitty Kibble money. <laughs> I prefer cash for alliteration purposes, Kitty Kibble cash. Uh, thank you, Lexi, for uh, your donation. Oh. We really appreciate it, and we know that you really like the show because you are very active in the Umbriard. And, and, uh, and a great, great person. A darn good egg. Absolutely. So all of you are darn good eggs. We love you all. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and ple- and present and pleasant, for your yeah. pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or for one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. I was also negligent in not mentioning a gift we got from one of our listeners, Angela Silzer. Longtime Yumber Yarder mm-hmm. sent me a book mm-hmm. called The Moose Jaw Murders. So thanks so much. I will pick a murder from there and possibly do an episode on it. Right on. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. And we do have a voicemail this week. And it came to us from a local listener oh. named... Tyler. Oh, I can't wait. So let's listen to what Tyler has to say. 
Hey, Mike and Scott. My name's Tyler, and I live in the Lower Mainland. I just wanted to say thank you so much for putting on a, an exceptional podcast. Um, I think you guys have done a heck of a job, and the content is great, and the production is overall uh, very impressive. So, once again, just thanks so much, and keep up the great work, guys. Right on. Ciao. Oh, thanks so much, Tyler. Tyler, that legitimately makes me feel really good. I love that stuff. Yeah, it just there's something about hearing a voice like that, that yeah. hit that really hits. Yep. Wow. Thank you, Tyler. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. That's where you can get our phone number from the contact portion. Mm -hmm. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Doodaloo, everybody. Chowder. <laughs>